Welcome to Vale la Pena, in English that's worth your while. I'm your host, Cynthia Rebus. This is a show where we get to do some grassroots philanthropy together. In all episodes, we'll feature nonprofit organizations engaged in inspiring projects for people, animals, and the environment. Some guests will be representatives of those organizations and they'll share with us more about initiatives they're working on and ways we can participate. Check the show notes for opportunities to impact these humanitarian causes together. You can find this show through my website at www.rebuslegal.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now, please join me for Vale la Pena. Hello and welcome to Vale la Pena. I'm Cynthia Rebus. I'm your host. And if you're new here, our show is about grassroots philanthropy. And we focus on humanitarian causes for people, animals, and the environment. Today, we're going to be focusing on that last world of concern, the environment. And I just want to say some intro comments. Vale la pena in English means worth your while. And it is our intent that that's exactly what today's conversation will be for you. Now, the way we do grassroots philanthropy here is very simple. We have conversations with people that are engaged in interesting projects. And then in the show notes, we make sure to link up the nonprofit that we will be featuring so that you can participate as you may wish. Of course, with direct donations, but also to connect with others who share your values through the organizations that we'll be featuring. Um, so today's guest, I am so excited to be able to bring to you Nadia Valiani. She is Director of Community Philanthropy at the Greater Houston Community Foundation. So without further ado, let's bring on Nadia. Hello, Nadia. Hi, Cynthia, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Doing very well, thanks. So you are coming to us from Houston. I'm here in Los Angeles. We're both in very big cities. Yes. You had shared with me that you've lived here and I've lived there. Um, and today we're looking a little bit at the environment. So tell us something about sort of the general overview of the Greater Houston Community Foundation and, and your role in it. Sure, yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so Greater Houston Community Foundation has been around for nearly 30 years um, in the serving the three county Houston area. Um, Harris County is one of those. It's the third most populous county in, in the country. Um, so we have a pretty large footprint. Um, if you're familiar with Houston as you are, it's also very sprawling. Um, so we primarily serve um, our donors, helping them fulfill their philanthropic impact and their donor intent, supporting them as they make uh, gifts and donations to causes and organizations that they care about. Um, but we've also in recent years focused more on the community part of community foundation. 
um, where we are trying to actually serve our community, provide uh, supports for them, what they're wanting, and begin to make investments uh, in a variety of different areas. So we've just started on this journey. The first step of that is the Understanding Houston Initiative, which is uh, something that I help work on. It is a data project, um, and happy to share a little bit more about that. Don't wanna, don't wanna go on too far, take over the show. No, yes, definitely. No, understanding Houston is fascinating. I spent some time on the website and you have lots of sub components. So tell us more about understanding Houston. Yeah, it's a product that we're really, really proud of. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have nice things to say about it too. The website is understandinghouston.org. I recommend if you're if you're interested to take a look. And essentially the purpose that Understanding Houston serves is to let more people know about our region's strengths and challenges. Um, when people hear Houston, they already have a lot of ideas, um, but we are so much more than just the sprawl, traffic, pollution. Um, of course, another stat that is touted a lot about Houston is, is our uh, tremendous diversity, which we, we possess. So on the Understanding Houston website, we cover about nine different topic areas and provide indicators um, on a, all of those topic areas with a lot of um, content, background, um, and analysis to help everybody interpret the data along these many different indicators. And hopefully the goal is people learn more about the Houston region and that can help inform their giving and, and really make some targeted investments in the areas where we're struggling the most. And just um, tell us a little bit about the different topics. Right, so it runs the gamut from arts and culture to, like you said, environment. We also have a very robust topic around health. So healthcare access, mental health, maternal and child health, and health outcomes, which as you know, are so related to the environment. Um, we also talk a lot about our community context, which is our population, our diversity, our immigration, things like that. Um, so it, it really does run a gamut, and as whatever it is you're interested in, I guarantee we probably have something on it. Let's focus a little bit on environment. Tell us something about the kind of statistics that you are um, obtaining, right? Calculating. Yeah, so the our environment section, we really sort of divide into two main topics, one around air and water quality. And then of course, cannot talk about the environment without talking about climate change um, and renewable resources. So those are the two main uh, subtopics of the, of the page and high level uh, key findings from when we updated the data late last year is that we've seen a lot of improvement in the Houston region a lot of improvement. We used to be known, as did LA, as the small capital of, of the country. And we've really made some incredible strides over the past 40 years to turn that around. Um, that being said, we still have so much more work to do, um, but that is a positive thing that, that we did wanna highlight that we've made incredible progress. Uh, so for example, our, um, the number of days where our ozone pollution levels were above the EPA standard have declined by nearly double, about two thirds over the past um, uh, 20 years, which is great. Um, and as well as our part particle pollution has, has declined by 23% over the past two decades. Fantastic, um, fantastic measures. But like I said, 
during that same time period for the United States, it actually has declined by 41%. So we have made progress, but we're not matching this pace as, as the country overall. So definitely much more work to be done. And what do you attribute that success to? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think that, um, I think there's been a lot of policy uh, changes that, that have influenced that. But I think that people have also realized that isn't necessarily a moniker that we want to be small capital of the world. We want to maintain energy capital of the world, but those two don't necessarily have to mean the same thing. Um, so I think that a lot of people have really taken on that the, to make our city and our region cleaner, prettier. We have undertaken uh, an enormous uh, green space initiative over the past 20, 30 years here in Houston, uh, where we didn't used to have a lot of parks and gathering spaces, and now they're they're everywhere. There's so many more parks than there used to be, and I think that just as a community and a policy has helped influence that this was an area that we really wanted to see improvement on, and and we and we certainly have. And what can people do? Like, I mean, I think people know to. You know, I mean, the, the, I guess the biggest issue is the car, right? But mm -hmm. what else can people do to help air quality? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. Um, definitely our car situation, as you also know, similar. It's 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 tough to get around in, in this city without a, a private vehicle. Um, I definitely feel like LA has done incredible work with their rail and there's buses constantly, but again, that's mostly in, in the urban core, right? Um, so same here. Um, if you live out in the suburbs, you have a much harder time getting anywhere without a car. Um, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, so I would say, what can you do? The usual, try to carpool. Um, I think also voting is huge. If that's a cause that you care about, make sure that we're voting rep for representatives and people who are advocating for, for more public transportation, better air quality, better water quality, things like that. I think that's really important too. And, and we also have a lot of a huge bike community in Houston, which I think a lot of people get are surprised by. Um, so if you're in Houston and you like biking, please definitely join. Uh, I think it's a really great community to have. They take over the streets. And then obviously there's all the innovation with automobiles. So if it's possible, maybe select a car that is uh, going to give you a little bit lighter footprint. That would definitely help. You know. Um, okay. And then I saw some fantastic graphs on your website that show sort of hot spots. Because I guess the real problem, right, are all these the particulate matter from from the petroleum industry, right? Some of these. Um, the actual facilities where petroleum is processed, right? Yeah, that's the other part about Houston. We certainly have a, a lot of refineries, petrochemical plants. It's a big part of our industry. Um, but what I like to talk about, I think which you're, you're referring to are the heat islands. So which are essentially pockets of extreme heat in the same city. Uh, and they're actually between one to 13 degrees hotter than other parts of the exact same city on the very same day. And part of the reason for that is lack of trees, lack of shade, lack of green space, parks, and 
an overprevalence of the built environment, more asphalt, more concrete, more buildings. And those items retain the heat during the day and then they take put it back out at night. They emit it back out. And these heat islands are a real serious problem. Um, like I said, research in the Houston area has found that by much as seven degrees, temperatures can vary. So one part of the uh, city will be seven degrees hotter than another part if you just drive about 15 minutes. Um, Houston actually is the fourth worst in the nation for this kind of heat intensity. Uh, so it's a, it's a significant problem here. And of course, um, another thing, it's impossible to talk about the environment without talking about equity, without talking about race, without talking about our country's um, history of segregation and racial exclusion. So a lot of these petrochemical plants, refineries, the ship channel, hotter areas, the areas with the heat islands, they all tend to be in communities that are low income and predominantly people of color, primarily black and Latino. Um, so it's a double whammy, essentially. Wow, I so appreciate you bringing that up. I don't know that people think a lot about that in terms of air quality, you're like, oh, so where you live, you know, it absolutely affects various health statistics, including, you know, we all definitely got to see during COVID that where you lived definitely influenced your likelihood of getting COVID, whether or not the vaccine was accessible to you. Right, um, right, 100%. I actually have a statistic here that when uh, we learned about it really just shook me to my core that I'd like to share with you and uh, yes, your audience. So nationally, um, black people are exposed to about 21% more pollution, though they produce 23% less pollution. So it is essentially double jeopardy where they are experiencing the harm at a disproportionate rate. Um, and, and that's really shocking. And then another result is that black children are twice as likely to develop asthma than white children. Um, so, and people of color are more than three times as likely to breathe polluted air. So really we see this in the data, we can see it anecdotally, we can see it on a map, but these st statistics I think really sort of bring that home that this is definitely also a, a, a racial inequity problem in, the, in addition to an environmental issue. Wow. No, it's so important to be thinking about all these factors, and it's great that you're correlating it for your donors because then they can really target their gifts, their giving. Absolutely. So if they're really, giving to, you know, most comfortable, you know, in terms of where they want to make the most impact. Absolutely. It's very possible if there's a they care about the environment. We have a lot of donors who do. They may choose to continue supporting causes that work to improve the environment, but then target that for areas that have seen, have experienced consistent disinvestment, extraordinary harm, the what we call the fence line communities that really sort of share same space physically and airspace with these pollution uh, producing industries. And I also saw, I believe it was through your website, but it might've been that I went down such a tunnel that I wound up in somebody else's work, but that there's also um, like 
areas that they've been able to identify greater cancer incidents? Yeah, absolutely. Called cancer clusters. Right. Um, absolutely. Perhaps the one that has received the most press in the Houston region is, um, I believe, Kashmir Gardens, where there is a railroad and there is a particular chemical um, or substance that has um, created almost like a pollution plume and an umbrella over that particular community. And they've seen um, disproportionate incidence uh, rates of cancer um, in, in that community. Wow. It's amazing how we can, you know, pinpoint this, but that's important intel. So we can then try to figure out, you know, what we can do for those communities, either get more green spaces in there, how we can do the mm -hmm. restorative work, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And then, um, you talked about sort of the main kind of two topics that your environment mm -hmm. section covers. So we, then you get into climate um, climate issues. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think Houston is such a fascinating uh, case as well when we're talking about climate change. We're in the Gulf. Um, we are definitely one of the regions that are more vulnerable to the negative shocks and impacts of disasters like hurricanes, tropical storms. Um, and of course, all of this is being influenced by, by climate change. So just uh, have some more statistics for you. Um, so just in the past 40 years, average temperatures in the Houston region have increased by <clears throat> about half to one degree Fahrenheit which doesn't sound necessarily like a lot, um, but trust me, when you're um, in Houston in July <laughs> and August, it's, it's a lot. It gets so hot here. Um, and actually, heat is the number one killer of Americans. Um, it's the number one weather-related killer among Americans, um, excessive heat. So it gets super hot here. And then we also have our humidity, which adds as much more heat. Um, the days above 95 degrees um, have actually increased between 67 to 87 percent in the region over the past um, the 30 years. So it has definitely gotten hotter here. Um, we've also seen crazier weather events um, as a result of, of climate change. Um, we have experienced um, since 1980, we've experienced 26 federally declared disasters, and about half of those, 12, had nothing to do with a hurricane or a tropical storm. They were just rain events that were declared a federal disaster because the impacts were so extreme. I'm sure you recall Hurricane Harvey in 2017. The National Weather Service added another color to their uh, precipitation map because that's how much precipitation fell in, in the Houston region. It was unprecedented. Um, so it's this intersection of environment, climate change, as well as disaster. Um, and again, bringing in the equity, it is the people who are most vulnerable to disasters that are the least able to have the resources to withstand those disasters, yet they are the ones who are most affected. Because again, they live in particularly lower lying areas. Their homes are less able to withstand disasters. We still hear um, about many, many thousands actually of, of households in the, in the region that are still 
have not recovered from Hurricane Harvey in 2017. And since 2017, there have been successive disasters and storms. And so with each one, your home is less, less strong and we're able to withstand that sort of impact. So it's, it's definitely a significant issue in the region. I did read that in the climate section, how Houston's gotten hotter and wetter and and then these issues of the, the areas that are <clears throat> hit the hardest and the disproportionate impact. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about Let's talk about that disproportionate impact a little bit more in terms of like um, poverty and uh, wealth inequality. And I know that's like a whole other section that you are studying data there. Right, disasters um, is one of the topics on the Understanding Houston website, which is notoriously difficult uh, to find very good consistent data on, on around disasters. So we definitely tried our best um, on the page, but a lot of the, the material really came from studies after Hurricane Harvey uh, because it was such a tremendous event. Um, and what we've learned through a survey that was conducted about one year after the storm is that low-income communities, predominantly Black, predominantly Latino, were more affected, not just by the weather impacts, but also being out of work. The entire uh, region basically shut down for one week. You could not go anywhere. Uh, water was, the streets were completely flooded. There were, you weren't able to leave. So a lot of businesses had to close. Of course, these are the the folks that are working hourly don't get paid, to, paid time off, um, and they've really struggled. So not just the weather-related impacts, but also the economic impacts. I kind of mentioned earlier a little bit about the housing. They're also probably the they are also the more most likely to rent rather than own their own home. And the way the FEMA and and federal assistance after disasters is set up is homeowners get the bulk of the, the financial support and assistance. There's very there's nothing for renters, honestly, very little for renters um, because the landlords get that money to improve their building. Um, renters don't get it to improve their unit. So they're also impacted in that way. Um, if you are lucky enough to be a homeowner, your house may not be in very great shape. We've seen people um, in our community living in conditions without uh, proper plumbing because it was still impacted from Harvey or then uh, it messed up again after our winter storm in 2021 when the entire state was out of power as, um, for several days, uh, if you, as you may recall. Um, so the impacts are varied and they really are, I think, broad scoped. Um, it's financially, it's your home, it's socially, it's jobs. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, disproportionate impact for the folks who are the least likely or least able to sort of withstand those kinds of economic shocks. And for listeners, if you want to make a donation to your foundation and you want to target, say, um, initiatives that are aimed at improving air quality in a particular area that, um, you know, has been hit hardest, you know, racially black or brown, right? These communities that are suffering the most from um, access, not having access to clean air or clean water issues. 
how would that work? Do you, you make the donation to the foundation and then it gets earmarked or do you make the donation to the specific initiative or? So if you are a donor with us, you can definitely make a grant through um, your donor advised fund. Um, we are only now beginning to fundraise for uh, our own discretionary grant making. Um, so not quite yet. Um, we encourage everybody to do your due diligence, research the nonprofits and the organizations that you're, that you're interested in supporting and, and make a, a donation directly to them. Um, what we've also learned is that the more you're able to make um, donations where that are unrestricted so that the organization can use it for the way that they need to, to operate best and be most efficient is really the best way to go. Uh, try not to necessarily earmark your donation for a particular program or, or population. Uh, the organization that does the work knows best how to distribute the funds. Um, and, and that's my recommendation if you're going to make a, a donation to a nonprofit. And you could do that to this your foundation directly and then leave it to the foundation to utilize. You can in about, a, in, a, in about six months. Um, that will be okay. that will be possible, but not quite okay. yet. Okay, because right now you guys are mostly collating data for others to then direct their their donations. Okay, right. that's that's. Yeah. I appreciate you clarifying that. Yeah, I think we're we're using understanding Houston as sort of the tool um, right. to share information about the Houston region. Um, we make a lot of presentations to nonprofits. Nonprofit users are actually a huge. Um, huge stakeholder of ours. They use our website a, a lot. Um, of course, our donors, people who are interested in the region in general, uh, but not quite yet are we able to sort of grant out money. Uh, but that is the next phase of the community uh, impact work that we're working on. Um, and like I said, in about six months, we, we should be there. Right. No, it's just um, also, I think, in terms of Houston's such an important city, right? In terms of definitely just in terms of how many people are there, but that brain share in terms of what you've created, um, I'm just wondering if other big cities are, are learning from what you're doing there because that data is so important to understand the different communities, you know, so we can target our efforts, our collective efforts. 100%, absolutely. Um, Understanding Houston launched in late 2019, um, and we were actually one of the later community foundations to have such an indicator project. It is um, a lot of the big community foundations have, have such a thing um, where you can learn more about the region and then target your donations. Um, so we're really excited that we were able to sort of contribute and build off of all the other incredible data tools that are already out there on the Houston region. Um, so the Kinder Institute has an incredible data tool for the Harris County region. One thing about understanding Houston is in order for us to be able to go broad and have nine different topic areas with hundreds of different indicators, we weren't able to go deep. So what you see is county level data. Now, if you're making decisions um, as a nonprofit or if you're curious about a specific community, that isn't really going to help that much because, like I said, Harris County is incredibly populous. It's so different. Um, our Fort Bend County is very different from Montgomery County in the north. Um, so the Kinder Institute created a tool for Harris County to look at neighborhood level data um, and it's called a Houston Community Data Connections, I believe. So we're really happy to, you know, add another uh, layer to the data tools that that are already out there. 
Well, in the show notes, we'll definitely point to Kinder so people can then take, you know, a look at that. Because I was thinking even like even looking at the data you guys have, like say you pick um, an area in, in Beaumont. I'm just going to guess, uh, <clears throat> you know, because that's one of the hot spots because of the refineries. You know, then you can then start targeting what are the nonprofits there? Who's doing what for clean air and clean water there for the people there? You know, what are the open spaces, green spaces? You know, what's being done? Absolutely. Um, it just gives you a really interesting way to target, you know, the impact you want to make. Right. Um, which I think is really fantastic. It's just so important for us to understand these things because, you know, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, systemic racism, right? And we're looking as a country at how to correct that moving forward and looking at it in terms of the environmental impacts is just a whole other level that's critical. Mm-hmm. That plays a role, of course, in healthcare and and everything. Yes, and has lifelong impacts. Um, that can even be passed down from generation to generation. So it's definitely consequential. Right, and I don't, and you know what you were saying earlier about how like, for example, um, white communities tend to be generating more of the air pollution and yet they live in areas where they're exposed to that the least. That's right, 100%. I just think, you know, that's, that's just something that um, it's all part of the systemic right. nature of the problem that Absolutely. we have a lot of work to do together. Um, okay, talk a little bit about uh, poverty and, uh, and Alice in particular. What is Alice? What should we know about that? Yeah, so poverty and Alice. So the United Way has created a really incredible tool of, to measure people who are working and making, uh, barely making ends meet. And it's called ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. So this is essentially the working poor. Now, why did they do this? Well, it goes back to the poverty threshold. The poverty threshold in the United States is incredibly low. It is incredibly unrealistic. So um, I, I can share with you, I'm looking at my notes here, that um, a family of four, uh, the poverty threshold is 26,500 for a family of four in the United States. Now the poverty threshold does not account for cost of living and it does not account for place. So in communities like Los Angeles, $26,500, it's, I mean, it's, it's completely unrealistic for what it means to actually struggle. So what they did was United Way has come up with Alice as a more realistic measure of what it takes to actually survive. This is a survival budget. This is not going on two vacations a year. Uh, This is not having a second home. This is purely survival, food, transportation, rent, healthcare, childcare, the essentials that we need to survive and and to lead our best lives. Um, And they did account for place, cost of living. Um, So in the Houston region, it's about 60 to $65,000 is what they've determined to be a reasonable amount for what it takes. Um, And what we've learned is that if you include folks who are living in poverty, plus the folks who are considered Alice, again, the working poor, 
what we've learned is essentially one out of two households is struggling to make ends meet in our region. If you look at the poverty rate, it'll tell you a different picture. Oh, it's just one in eight, although that's still significant, right? But what the Alice shows you is that nearly half of the households in our region are really struggling to make ends meet, even though they're working full time. Um, and, and that just puts people in a really, really difficult place. Absolutely. And I just appreciate also you bringing up this whole concept of the of working poor, because, you know, you want to understand what is going on there. And it's a function of low wages. Yes. Right. Um, definitely, you know, the pandemic then shut jobs down and things like that. But even without a pandemic, um, the kind of job where uh, whatever layoffs, um, and just the transportation to get to the job, um, all the different factors that even though people are working, they're still not uh, able to make ends meet. And really what we've seen is that housing has, has been really the, the biggest um, eater of, of people's wages. I, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, the rent eats first. Um, so you pay your rent first. And then you figure it out, the rest of it. Right. And renters in particularly, um, another stat for you is that about one out of two um, households in the region spend at least 30, sorry, 50% of their income on housing alone. So one out of uh, two, so, which is insane. If you think about, um, if you spend that much money that much of your income on housing, there's so much less for everything else. So you still have not eaten at that point. You have not paid for your car and transportation, which is necessary here. You haven't been able to pay for your health insurance. I mean, there's so many things, right? Um, and what we've learned also is that there's less for savings. So about 30% of households in our region don't have $400 in savings that they can access in case of an emergency. Right. If most of your income is going to rent, then it's also kind of a, it keeps you in uh, renter status because it's just so much harder to try to save and be able to finance a home anywhere. Right. Um, and renters are definitely more burdened by housing costs than homeowners. At least homeowners have also been building up equity in their home, um, even if their median costs are, are of course, higher. Um, but yeah, it's really, again, renters who are struggling the most. Okay. Well, Nadia, I'm so grateful to you for taking time to discuss some of these important topics with us. Is there anything that we haven't covered you want to make sure the listeners get to think about? I guess what I would leave everybody with is if you think about if you have been in a position where you need to, you're struggling and you don't have many choices, what that does to you, I think not just physically, but also mentally, I think that we put a lot of blame on, on folks who are living in poverty or who are not making ends meet or who aren't earning um, you know, a livable wage. And I think what we need to think about is that if folks didn't have to worry so much about making their rent or whether or not 
they can neither feed their child or themselves. What, what could we be capable of if that was not weighing on your mind? And so poverty is the richest country in the world is, is a problem and it's, and it's sad, but it's also holding all of us back. I think that if all 42 million people in this country who are living in poverty, that very small basic threshold, if they didn't have to worry so much about that and making ends meet, what could we accomplish as a, as a country together? And how can we build off of what we have already accomplished? If you think about, it's just a massive amount of people who are not being able to live their full potential and, and it costs all of us. It's a great question. It's a great question. We definitely need to address these issues because we're all, we're all, we're all in this together, and we're all really um, impacted adversely from it in a way that we wouldn't be if we could just, you know, all boats would rise, right? If we could address some of these issues, and I so appreciate all the data that you're collecting. I think it's such a terrific tool for philanthropy and for other educational reasons. But here today, we're talking about grassroots philanthropy so people can really target the impact they wish to make. And then in the show notes, we'll be sure to put the link to your foundation and to Kinder. Um, and for listeners, I hope today has been worth your while. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Vale La Pena. Please join us in making an impact together for people, animals, and the environment. Details in the show notes. You can find this show through my website at www.rebuslegal.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. I'm your host, Cynthia Rebus. And I welcome and thank you for your feedback, comments, questions, and sharing this show with others.